Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Breber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And we hope that you have had a very Merry Christmas. And there was lots of great sports. The most loaded day in terms of NBA and NFL action on Christmas because we did have the three football games. So we are going to be talking about all of that today. But we'll start with the NFL just because we had one of the most hyped up matchups of the season on that Monday night slot between the Ravens and the Niners. The Niners who have been the Super Bowl favorite in our eyes and the general consensus. And the Ravens went and took it to them, Logan. And we had this whole conversation last week about our top 10 quarterbacks in the NFL today. And we discussed Brock Purdy in that range. Brutal game for him with the four interceptions in this blowout. Do you feel like he got exposed at all in this game? That's a good question. And I don't know if exposed is the right word. I guess it's kind of how you view Purdy. Yeah. I do think we learned something major about Purdy in this game and about the 49ers. Uh, Two things, really. One, I don't know if Purdy can be the guy. I guess that is the question, right? Because you see, he digs himself such a big hole at the beginning of this game. And I was intrigued because when you got three interceptions early in the second quarter, you're rattled. And I felt like this was the first time, Carson, in all of Purdy's young career that we really got to see under the fire if he could bounce back, uh, you know, from from such a bad hole, like against a great defense when you've already been having such a bad game. And We saw he couldn't. You know, I mean, the only successful offense that the Niners were able to generate down the rest of the game was when they handed the ball off on the left side is what it felt like. And it is a glaring weakness, Carson, that we need to be worried about with Shanahan and the 49ers. Uh, The big stat that's been going around recently 
the Niners are 1-32 when the Niners enter the fourth quarter down three points. I know that was my chief concern for the 49ers at the start of this year when they were rattling off win after win. Can they play from behind? Can they play with a deficit? In the entire Purdy and Shanahan era, specifically the Shanahan era too, the Niners have proven that they cannot play from behind. They cannot cut into leads. They cannot play their way back into the games. They have to get their foot on the other team's neck early and accelerate from then. So that to me is my big concern about the Niners moving forward, Carson. And can Purdy have great games in the playoffs? Because we've seen it in years previous. You don't have to be perfect every game of the playoffs. But there is going to be one game, at least one, come playoff time where the quarterback has to elevate his play and go above and beyond to carry his team through. And Purdy has yet to prove that he's an elevator. You know what I mean? Again, we both had him in our top 10. Or you had Purdy in your top 10 as well, correct? Item number nine among the healthy quarterbacks Mm -hmm. as of today. I would have him probably 13 if we brought back Herbert, Burrow, Rodgers, and Kirk. And yeah, I think I'm in the same boat with you. Purdy has yet to prove that he's an elevator, that he can put his team on his back and carry them through tough times. And that has to be a concern heading into the playoffs. And that's a distinct advantage that other real contenders still have over them. You know, all of these teams have their fatal flaws, have their question marks, but the Eagles have a QB advantage. The Ravens clearly have a QB advantage. The Chiefs, despite all their flaws, still have that major QB advantage. And yeah, I I don't know if exposed is the right word, but (laughs) again, it's Purdy's going to have to step up come playoff time. And this was a less than resounding answer uh, that he can answer the call when they need him to in the playoffs. I think you hit the nail on the head with the first thing that you said, which is that this really depends on your perspective on Brock Purdy. If you have been beating the drum, calling him Drew Brees with more athleticism and the MVP of the league, and I saw somebody comment on one of our videos recently that he is without question the most valuable player to any team in the NFL, then you've had a reality check here. And what you've seen is that Purdy... I still believe is legitimately good, but is absolutely a beneficiary of offensive heaven, playing with the best collection of weapons I believe ever, and one of the two best offensive minds in football. The same situation that made Jimmy G a top three quarterback by a lot of these efficiency stats and brought them nearly to a Super Bowl victory with him at the helm when he sucked the whole time. So, That's where the situation has always been important to consider when we look at the statistical production from Purdy and all of these things. To me, this showed that he is just where we had him. He's in that Jared Goff tier. He's a slightly above average starting quarterback in a fully healthy league. He's capable of some disaster classes like this. And the four turnovers for him are tough because a couple of them are deflections right one of them his arm is getting hit as he throws the ball really only the first one when they're driving would I say that's just a flat out bad read right he should see that Kyle Hamilton has the angle to come and make that play on that ball and he doesn't the others are sort of these not freak plays but it's not like he literally just misread or made a wildly inaccurate throw in a vacuum So it's not like I watched this and thought, oh my God, Brock Purdy can't play quarterback. He just had some really bad moments against an elite defense. And you can't put him in the top five tiers because he's not the caliber of elevator, of one-man offense that those kind of guys are. And when you do have a team that is significantly putting him under pressure, like, yeah, he has the ability to make guys miss to a certain extent. He's pretty solid there, and he has some creativity as an offensive player, but he's just not going to excel, and he can be overwhelmed. So... Do you regret having him as a top 10 guy? Not at all. And I, 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 again, 
box score people. People are going to look at these numbers and they are going to go. Uh, again, we just live in such a right here, right now world where everything is reactionary and everything is, uh, what's the hot take? Well, the hot take now is that, you know, Purdy's not top 15. Purdy's fully made mm-hmm. by the Niners, right? And mm-hmm. I do think it's funny because, Carson, we caught a lot of flack, not only on our video, uh, we made a graphic afterwards and put it on social. A ton of people in our Instagram comment section crying laughing emojis. You guys have the MVP of the league at nine. You have Purdy. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous to me because, again, we never really considered him in that tier. And, no, I don't. Yeah. Considering the state of the league, considering the guys that are hurt, I don't have an issue with putting Purdy there. And I think on a normal given Sunday, Purdy's going to play better than this. And I think you make a really great point, too, about the interceptions – if you just look at the four picks, look, man, that stat line's never good. But two mm-hmm. of those throws, as you mentioned, are him going through his progressions, and there's just mistiming with uh, with the receivers. McCaffrey's not ready for a ball on an in route. Uh, Kittle's not ready for another pass. Like, and those easily turn into interceptions. I think Purdy is a top ten QB. I mean, maybe the one thing that I should take away from this is maybe maybe him and Tua is a little closer than I. Uh, Oh, it's real close. You know what I mean? Because Purdy's obviously a little more turnover prone than I expected. But again, within context, this is the number one defense in the NFL. They have some of the best defensive playmakers in the NFL. They were getting pressure all night long. And if I'm going to toot my own horn, shout out Theo Mm. Ash NFL. I know he's been high on the guy since he came into the league. So have I. Kyle Hamilton's one of the best damn safeties in the league. And he made some huge plays here tonight. So again, it's within context. It's within, within wherever you had him before. I think Purdy is somewhere between top 10 to fringe top 10. He is a good quarterback that just was outmatched by a superior defense, and this was a bad game from him. Uh, yeah. He's just not an MVP caliber player, and I think that's a, that's a tough pill that a lot of people are going to have to swallow. It's not just numbers. It's it's what you do against great teams, and Purdy didn't answer the call, man. I, I don't regret having him in my top 10 at all. But I know there are probably a lot of people that certainly regret having him as their MVP and in their top five if they had him there because he got elevated into conversations like that. I don't regret where I had him either. Maybe I would move him a spot or two. Goff is a better pure arm talent, Mm -hmm. but he is more of a statue in the pocket to me. He's not as creative a playmaker as Purdy, and he does also have some of these really ugly games where he will turn the ball over three or four times. Tua, I think, is a better quarterback within two seconds of the snap in structure. Mm -hmm. He's just a bit more accurate. I think his timing is even a bit more precise. Like, the things that Purdy's really good at in those situations, I think Tua is even a little bit better. But then I do think that Purdy is still a bit better as a creator out of structure. Like, he's in that tier somewhere. Whether it's a spot or two lower, that's the conversation that he belongs in. And you raised an important question, which is, can you win the Super Bowl with a guy like that? Because we have seen the trend in recent years. It is overwhelmingly the elite quarterbacks in this league winning Super Bowls. It's Patrick Mahomes. It's Matt Stafford in a career season as a top five quarterback. It's Tom Brady. It's Patrick Mahomes. It's Tom Brady. Even the Nick Foles year. I mean, I'll be damned if he wasn't playing like an elite, elite quarterback in that run. And I have said before that although I do think that Purdy is actually good, he is the one thing that Mm -hmm. can sort of derail this 49ers team because we saw it in the three-game skid. What was the big difference? Well, they were down a couple of key offensive players, Debo, Trent Williams, and when Purdy was asked to do more, he really, really struggled. And now, if you look at their four losses this year, 
Purdy has been really bad in those games. He's three touchdowns to nine picks. Mm. And in their wins, he has been nearly perfect statistically. 26 touchdowns to two picks over 10 yards per pass attempt. But he does have to prove that he can thrive in those situations where things are more adverse, where he has to carry a heavier load. The question to me is, though, could this year be an exception where the competition is so flawed Mm -hmm. and the Niners are just so stacked that they can still get by? I think through the NFC, it probably is. I think that they can dominate basically any team in the conference where they won't have to be playing from behind. I mean, presuming health, Purdy won't have to go above and beyond and be exceptional. But the Ravens are the scary team in that equation because this defense is unbelievable and they have that superstar quarterback who is going to show out every single game. Maybe that is the difference maker. That was a big takeaway for me, Carson, too. I'm glad you bring that up. One of my takeaways from this game, I wrote this down in the first half when it was still close, but the Super Bowl is wide open. And you made this case a couple of weeks ago talking about the parity between teams, how everybody is fatally flawed. I think the Super Bowl is wide open, and I think the Ravens are probably the front runner now because of that quarterback advantage. I mean, you see the disaster from the Chiefs. seems like the bottom is falling out there. Uh, they have hit their skid. The Eagles hit their skid. The Cowboys are doing their Cowboys thing. The Niners yeah. play good competition, and they get housed here. Like It seems like Baltimore is kind of taking that. And again, I don't want to be overreactionary to one week, but the Niners were the best team in football. We had all crowned them. They take on real competition. Baltimore just seems like they have a real distinct advantage offensively. And again, I think you're right too, Carson. That's the one box that Purdy has not checked. When they're playing on uh, ahead, when they can run McCaffrey down teams' throats and play their game, Mm -hmm. they can do it. But I've seen Lamar in adverse situations, and I've seen Lamar overcome and take this team on final drives. Purdy hasn't done that. Currently right now, I'll go ahead and spoil it. I am okay. really rooting heavily for a Browns-Lions or a Steelers-Lions Super Bowl. Uh, oh, that yeah. Would, Steelers. That'll that would be great. That would be awesome, right? A Mason Rudolph-Jared uh, Goff showdown in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Browns-Lions would be awesome, man. Can you imagine Joe Flacco, Jared Goff dueling it out? I mean, not really. That'd I can't sick, imagine that right? in any realistic world. That's not going to happen, Logan. We're not playing some sort of fantasy game here. I still think this was the Super Bowl preview. I think right now these teams both stand head and shoulders above everybody else in their conference. The Bills, I think, are hot, but I mean, they had an underwhelming performance this week. The Ravens have just been more consistently mm-hmm. great as a football team. And Both teams have top three quarterbacks, unbelievable one-man offensive engines who are going to make you a top five unit on that side of the ball, even if they don't have great personnel around them. But to me, the gap is the defense. I mean, the Ravens are unbelievable, dude. I was just thinking, like, how many pro bowlers are on this defense? I'm just going to throw out names, okay? Kyle Hamilton, I think, is an all-pro. Matt Abike is yes. going to be a pro bowler for sure. I think Jadavion has had an unbelievable season. He's probably a pro bowler. Geno Stone, big-time playmaker, big time. probably a pro bowler. Marlon Roquan Humphrey. Smith has to be a pro bowler. Humphrey, probably because he's missed a handful of games, won't make it, but he's pro bowl caliber. You, you, think, you think Patrick Queen, too? That's the next guy who I was about to say. In that, like, I think there are six legit pro bowlers, and then you have... 
Brandon Stevens, Michael Pierce, Marcus Williams, Man. Kyle Van Noy. You have dudes who like aren't even starters. I mean, Van Noy doesn't start for most of the season. And then you have Owe, you have Malik Harrison, Ronald Darby's playing well. It's just like, what the hell? Like, how did they get this many quality players? It's unbelievable. And they've certainly revitalized some guys. And I think the culture and the coaching here is amazing. It's a really impressive blend of that and this high-end talent. That, to me, is the separator between them and the other AFC teams where they have these great quarterbacks, but the Chiefs are just too flawed offensively. We'll talk about them in a little bit. I don't know if this moves Baltimore above San Francisco for me just because I do think this is an outlier game because of the five turnover factor. And, of course, Baltimore is a big-time defense. They made big-time plays. But that sort of gap, a plus five turnover differential, you just can't expect that to be replicated. Mm -hmm. And it's not like the Niners were incapable of moving the ball. Oh, yeah. I mean, they drove down the field, and then they had a turnover. Sometimes they would have the turnover before they could get things started. But when they could sustain a drive without turning the ball over, they did fine. I mean, they averaged more yards per play in this game. They gained more total yards. Those numbers are inflated a bit by the end when you're basically in garbage time. But just overall... A huge portion of this game was disastrous field position. The Ravens got the ball in scoring position three different times in this game, and the Niners gave it up as they were about to score once. So it's not like the Ravens went out there and hung 450 yards on them, and the Niners had 200 yards total offense. I still believe in the Niners' formula. I do, because I think that defense is elite, and I think that... There's the dichotomy of Lamar always having to do more versus a guy like Purdy, but also having more faith in Lamar mm -hmm. to do that exceptional stuff. I came into this game liking the Niners more. I think I like them slightly more still, but it's tough, man. That quarterback trust factor is real. Lamar is in complete mm -hmm. control of the game right now. He is playing at the highest level he ever has. And the MVP conversation has gotten so tired this year because every single week we flip. But the MVP right now is Lamar Jackson. I don't care if his raw production, his touchdown total, isn't up to the standard of a traditional MVP. Nobody has been more impactful transforming a unit for an elite football team this entire season than Lamar Jackson. That's what we said at the midseason point. That's how I feel right now. I concur. And that's the difference to me, Carson. You already said it. It's Lamar. That's the difference to me between these two teams. And I still think that has to be your no, red flag. Fair. Like I said earlier, dude, that's the next step for Brock Purdy, that proving that he can do this in adverse situations. Again, this is hard, and that's why you should also take this, not with a grain of salt. This is a big result. But when you're in those games, when everything's not going right, it's so much harder to change the energy and to change the tide and to completely turn mm -hmm. it around for you instead of when you've dug yourself that hole and it's, man, I got to go back out here and I got to try to get back on course. Purdy yeah. is a big-time rhythm guy. And if you can get him yeah. flustered early, he's a little easier to throw off. And again, it's harder for the Niners to climb out of these deficits because of who they have at quarterback. So I'm not counting the Niners out of the Super Bowl race by any means. And they are. Yeah. With all the flawed teams in the NFC, they are still my number one. But I would go ahead and it's still tough for me between the Ravens and the Chiefs. I still, even after wow. the disaster that we saw against Vegas, I don't want to completely count out Kansas City either because I think their defense is so great. Again, mm -hmm. and I know this is the, it feels like the fourth or fifth consecutive week I have come out here and said, this isn't the week to make the Chiefs case, but I mm -hmm. still don't want to count them out. So for me, yeah. the three teams that are ahead of everybody are the Ravens, the Niners, and the Chiefs to me. 
and the Chiefs are three, wow. but it's really close between all those teams to me. Wow. I'm on your I'm on your side here. I would say Baltimore, San Francisco is my prediction, but Kansas City is right on the cusp for me. Interesting. I don't have them in that same conversation. And I think that the Ravens are the most flawless team in football right now. I think the ceiling that we have seen from the Niners, though, how just completely dominant they are at their best, I think that's what sold most of us on them as the Super Bowl mm -hmm. favorite, and I still believe in that. This was a rough game. The rhythm was thrown off from the jump because of the turnovers, and you are right, Logan. Like We've seen you don't get a sort of win-loss statistical disparity like Brock Purdy mm -hmm. has if you aren't a rhythm guy and if those issues don't compound themselves when things start going south because that's what happened, right? The Vikings game, it's like, it's not that there's one bad mistake. There's multiple mm -hmm. bad mistakes. It just has felt like when he's been bad, he has been bad. And when he's been perfect, it's he's been damn near perfect. And he was for eight weeks up until this game. And then he was pretty bad. I will say one last thing before we move on to talking about the Chiefs. I feel like you're defaulting a little too much when we talk about some of these good teams, too. They go up against good competition, and they crumble. Like, they played the other top two team in football. Yeah. They dominated the Cowboys, who, regardless of what you think, if they're overrated, a good football team. They dominated the Eagles. Like, they have taken care of business. They dominated the Jags. This is an elite football team that soundly outplayed them, but it was also a game with a crazy turnover margin, the sort of thing that you don't expect to happen if they do meet again. It's Shane Falco in the replacements, man. It's him in the Rose Bowl. Mm. It's it's that quicksand, dude. It's it's quicksand. Yeah. Fair. Very fair. Well, speaking of quicksand, Logan, you know who's sinking pretty fast, but you are still hanging on to is those Chiefs who lost to the Raiders in pretty stunning fashion where you have defensive touchdowns for Vegas on back-to-back -back plays, and Kansas City just couldn't recover from that. They put up only 14 points in this one. Are you officially in panic mode with them now sitting at nine and six? I'm going to quote friend of the show, Gabe Swartz, uh, Kansas City resident, uh, mm. <laughs> during their five-year run of tyranny over the NFL. Uh, WHPM, we have Patrick Mahomes, is what yeah. Gabe would always say. Whenever the Chiefs were losing, whenever the Chiefs were in adverse situations, they could be down two TDs in a playoff game with one quarter to go. WHPM, we have Patrick Mahomes. Don't lose the faith. And that's kind of where I'm at with the Chiefs right now, Carson. This is an absolute disaster. This is the single worst game I have ever seen the Kansas City Chiefs in this offense play in the Patrick Mahomes era. And something that was so remarkable to me at the start of this broadcast, it's really hard to put into words now because we've been talking about Patrick Mahomes as the greatest quarterback talent of all time and one of the greatest QBs ever for so long. And I know it can kind of get tired and downtrodden how much heap, uh, how much praise we heap upon him. But Carson, this was the first game in the Patrick Mahomes era where he had back-to-back three and outs at home. Wow, that's ever. insane. That's ridiculous, man. Like, at the start of the broadcast, that was going to be my takeaway, and it was going to be, oh, this is the worst start the Chiefs ever had. They just had two three and outs back-to-back. -back. <laughs> that's the bar. That's mm -hmm. the bar, man. Dude, if the Steelers have a game where they start and don't have back-to-back -back three and outs, I'm ready to throw a party, you know? That's a parade, yeah. Yeah, we're going to hang a banner. <laughs> Got a first down on the first two drives. For the Chiefs, Again, that is how bad of a game this was for them. And it, it was everything. Nothing went right. The sync with the receivers, the defensive TDs. You have a missed chip shot field goal from Harrison Butcher. Mm -hmm. 
Kelsey is dropping everything. He pulls a, a, oh man, who is it in the Super, a Thurman Thomas in the Super Bowl, and he takes his helmet and he slams it and... Sorry, man, not to bring up bad Uncalled memories. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. Thurman, fun fact about that Super Bowl where he throws his helmet. Thurman actually had to sit out the first couple of series of that game because the fan wouldn't give his helmet back. Somebody had to go and retrieve it and get it for him because it bounced in the stands. And shout out uh, Andy Reid. That is uh, a petulant child. That is how a petulant child acts when he is upset. I'm glad that Andy Reid took, took Kelsey aside and said, you're a leader of this team. You can't be doing that, man. That's just unprofessional. Uh, you got tables breaking under Isaiah Pacheco when he's going to check on his knee and his head, man. You got Townsend booting multiple punts, 20 yards. Like, it was... Yeah. How about Pacheco's helmet coming off to begin with and him taking a flying knee to the head? Multiple times! Yeah. <laughs> And and what I think is so funny, oh, we're all about player safety. We don't want anybody's head to get hurt. No whistle blown. No whistle blown at all. That would have been the first thing that I'd do. It was just, it was just everything compounded for the Chiefs and an absolute disaster. And ironically, because you're playing those Raiders, you got Aiden O'Connell under quarterback, and somehow at the end of this game, after all this has gone awry, you still have a chance to win this game. All of the second half and all of the fourth quarter. Big shout out to the defense, too. But it was just an absolute disaster. And it's kind of the same thing about what you said about the Niners, Carson. Everything goes wrong. You have five turnovers. And the Ravens should have won that game by more. They probably should have 60 or 70 pieced them. You know, the Chiefs are still in this game. 70 pieced them? I don't know. I mean, they should should have 50 or 60 pieced them. Oklahoma against McNeese State? (laughs) Settle down. They should have put up more points. They do settle for some field goals in this game. But, you know, it's it was an absolute disaster, and that's why I can't fully say that I'm out on the Chiefs. But this is a trend with the receivers, with MVS, with Tony. with uh, Again, it started out as a bread trail of single individual plays, and we have seen this bread mm-hmm. trail slowly build to where all we found all the bread. We found the whole stash in this game. Yeah. And it was all spoiled rotten. Like, it just, it it felt like we were building to a head here, and this is where the Chiefs popped. Next week is the real answer to me about the Kansas City Chiefs, Carson. It's not this week. We've seen all the individual plays that have built up to this disaster of a game, and this is where it popped. Next week is the true test for me about the Chiefs. If the O-line can get healthy and can protect, if the receivers can get back in sync with Mahomes, and if they can just get back on the right track. Next week, if the Chiefs show up or don't show up, I'm ready to write them off and say that I'm ready to hit DEFCON 5. Right now, I'm mm-hmm. not ready to. Next week, to me, is the true test. If they come out and they are, uh, and you know, we got grass growing under the tires I'm ready to write them off. Not right now, though. I I just, again, I have too much faith in Patrick Mahomes and this defense. I've been saying it for four weeks. I'm tired of beating this horse. I'm just not ready to quit on this team yet, man. I'm not quitting on the Chiefs. I'm just more concerned than you are. I still have such deep-seated faith in Patrick Mahomes that with this defense, he is going to make the Chiefs a terrifying opponent to me in any single game. But you just can't ignore the trend. I mean, this team hasn't sniffed 400 yards since that Chargers game. That was eight games ago. And since their bye, 
Every game has been underwhelming. Yes, they could have beaten the Eagles, but they lost. And then they played a pretty good game against the Raiders the first time that they met. And then they lose to the Packers' bad game. They lose to the Bills. They get outplayed. They just, like, I mean, take care of things against the Pats, I guess, but it wasn't impressive. And then this game, just a disaster. I just don't know how long you cannot be a good football team and I can maintain faith that you're an elite football team. I still like the Chiefs more than their record, but boy, these are real issues, man. I don't think the play calling has been as brilliant as we're used to, but obviously the biggest issue here is just the play of the supporting cast. And one of these turnovers is certainly on Mahomes, I thought. I didn't think that was a very good ball. He certainly wasn't in sync in terms of timing with the receiver. And then Jack Jones made a great play. And the other defensive touchdown, a little bit of that Andy Reid attempted magic, which a lot of times works out. But when it is a direct snap to Pacheco, handoff to Mahomes that leads to six for the other team, then you don't feel as great about getting creative there. But beyond those two outlier plays, I mean, you mentioned the three and out stat. It just felt like over and over again, you're looking at third and long. They were 5-16 and 16 on third down. Could not run the ball in this game. Their running backs attempted 15 rushes for 32 yards. And boy, that Raiders defense played well, man. Like, I need to apologize to the Raiders. I do. Because after they won their fifth game, I said, these guys still suck and they're going to lose every game for the rest of the year. And then they went and they beat the Chargers by 42. And then they went and they won this game against the Chiefs. It's incredible, Logan. My favorite stat for a couple years has been that the Raiders haven't had a top 20 scoring defense since 2006, which, by the way, they were still 2-14 and 14 that season, and they landed the great prize that was Jamarcus Russell. It's just an unbelievable, unparalleled run of incompetence on that side of the ball, and they've turned it around here. I think that they have now built a culture, and I think that they have now added the right personnel, and I thought that they were great in coverage in this game. I thought they got a whole lot of pressure. Pat had to resort to scrambling more than he would like. Sometimes you're looking at like fourth down situations or third and long situations where there's really nothing there. He just kind of throws the ball up and nobody's open, and it's almost like admitting failure. And I don't know when the last time a team had two defensive touchdowns in back-to-back -back weeks was. That, I don't know if it's ever happened before. Logan, get the stat guy on that. Get Wait, Jamie on uh, that. A single, a single player. No, when has a team had two defensive touchdowns, which they did against the Chargers, the, and then two defensive touchdowns the oh, next week? Double deuce. I thought you meant individual. The last time I remember no. a team doing this individually was Mike Brown for the Bears in like 03. He had back-to-back game-winning defensive touchdowns for the That's Bears. Pretty sick. Pretty remarkable. I don't – it may have never. I mean, I'm going to see if I can find that. Dude, if you get four defensive touchdowns in a season, that's some Steelers production. Yeah. That'll swing a few <laughs> games your way to do it in two weeks. Unbelievable. So, props to them for really balling out and stepping up. But when it comes to the Chiefs, I don't think they are hopeless in terms of winning the Super Bowl because that defense has been awesome this entire stretch. They let up the one third down on that last play where Zamir White, who's also been really good these last two weeks, gets that big run and that seals the game. But overall, I mean, Aiden O'Connell completed nine passes in this game, right? They held him to 200 yards of offense. They let up six points, the defense. They are still doing their job at an incredibly high level. But this team needs to invest big resources in wide receiver. Like, the Chiefs need to spend their first-round pick this year on receiver. I don't really care who's on the board, man. You do whatever it takes to make that happen. And I do think we've talked so much about the limitations of the supporting cast, but Kelsey has taken a step back this year. 
Now, he's still producing at a very high level. He's still an elite tight end. But, I mean, is he a top five receiving weapon in the game like he has been with his ability to just dominate those intermediate areas of the field, his ability to just sit against any zone and always find the soft spots, just the sort of mismatch, matchup nightmare that he's always been, how good he's been after the catch. I just think he's lost a step in terms of that athleticism. And, Logan, here's my take before you give the Raiders stat, which hopefully you found. I think George Kittle has surpassed him as the best tight end in football. I think he's obviously a much better blocker, and he always has been. But now I view him as a much more explosive receiver after the catch. I just think that little bit of regression and athleticism from Kelsey, he's still damn good, but he's not quite what he was last year and the handful of years before that. Uh, so I got Jamie on it uh, in the back. Shout yeah, out. thanks, Jamie. Uh, <laughs> uh It hasn't happened, Carson. The way the Raiders did it with two defensive touchdowns in back-to-back weeks hasn't happened in 11 years since 2012. Uh, The Patriots do it in 2012. uh, With two interceptions, two fumble recovery TDs, and a punt return. And then the Bears did it in 2012 with four Mm. uh, pick sixes. Last team to do it, uh, if we include return TDs overall, 2015 Cardinals uh, they had three pick sixes and one kick return. Mm. So, yeah, 11 years since somebody's done it exactly wow. how the Raiders done it and just return TDs in general. Nobody has had two in back-to-back weeks in eight years, man. Now, here's the stat that we won't be able to find, but that would make it all the more unbelievable. The last time that it happened on back-to-back drives in both of those games. Yeah. I mean, this one is literally back-to-back plays. Last week, I think it was like two plays of separation between them. Unbelievable, crazy stuff, but... It's interesting to me that you still have that level of faith in the Chiefs, that you're not hitting the panic button at all, because this is what I've been saying the last couple weeks. Like, week after week after week, you wait for them to turn it around. You wait for that performance where Mahomes does just overcome the supporting cast and explode, and they look like the Chiefs of old. And when it hasn't happened once in seven weeks, eight weeks, that's concerning. No, it's incredibly rational, but... Faith isn't rational, right? Faith is irrational. And and that's where I lie with with Kansas City is all you hit it on the head. All I think it takes is one week, Carson. And again, I've been holding out for 15, 16 yeah. now, man. It is frustrating. But faith is irrational. And I, I think it's going to take one week. It's about football stupid man it's like baseball hitting your stride at the right time and for sure that's going to be a big key heading into these final weeks because it was kind of a foregone conclusion that the that the chiefs again were waiting for them to hit this turn that they're going to have a first round bye that they're going to have home field advantage too the situation that we are quickly approaching with kansas city is we're going to have to see patrick mahomes in a wild card game for the first time we're going to have to see yep. patrick mahomes uh Go on the road, potentially, for the first time in a playoff situation. And we're going to have to see Mahomes and this Chiefs team find it before the final weeks. If they can do it, if they can answer the call next week, if they can answer the call in two weeks, and they can just find a little bit of a rhythm heading into the playoffs, I'm ready to go back in on the Chiefs because I have that level of faith. But you're right. Rationally, if you were looking at the tape that we have seen on the field this season, the Chiefs have really given us nothing to say that this is the team that we should buy into and this is why they should win the Super Bowl. There's really nothing on the tape. If the Chiefs do win the Super Bowl, I mean, good Lord, Patrick Mahomes. To me, that'll be the most impressive run of his career because I'm just assuming he's going to have to rise to just a stratospheric level because this defense is by far the best that he's had, but 
this offense, the supporting cast, is by so far the weakest that he's had. I don't see it as a likely outcome, but I can't say that it's an impossible outcome because elite defense and elite, elite best quarterback in the world is always a scary combination. Let's talk NBA, Logan, because the NBA has always been a Christmas holiday, and I personally didn't love the NFL sticking three games on that Monday. That felt like a bit of an overreach, a bit of the greedy NFL. They want to have a game every day. They got to have Saturday games and Thursday games. Settle down a bit, Goodell. This is an NBA day, and we got the ultimate classic NBA matchup Mm -hmm. as one of the fun games of the day. Lakers-Celtics, Logan, and the Celtics end up winning this one. Every single starter of theirs yesterday scored 18-plus points. They combined for 108, and I sort of shared my thoughts on this on Twitter yesterday, but where do you think this Celtics starting five ranks among just the best in the NBA in recent memory? All right, man, I don't mean to be like a Debbie Downer, but the first one that I came to was the Denver Nuggets of last year, the Denver Nuggets of this year, if I'm being honest. Agreed. Uh, I I think the top-level talent that you have there in Jokic and Murray, uh, one, the pairing, those two fit together like a glove. Shout out Ace Ventura. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just, they work so well together. (laughs) Oh, Oh, man, the Isotoner gloves, man, didn't fit. Uh, they're they fit together like a glove. They're unstoppable when it comes to in the clutch. All of those pieces fit to, together so well. And again, I think that if you're looking at individual talent, those guys probably don't stack. But the way they fit together, I think yeah. works. And you've got three All Star caliber players. The distinction that Boston has is they legitimately do have five All Star caliber players in their starting five. And mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of traction for Derek White to get some All Star votes. Yeah, I don't hate it. I, I don't hate it. You know, I, I can see a case. I probably wouldn't do it, but yeah, I don't hate the take. He's been playing his ass off. Like Tatum Brown, KP Holiday, Derek White, that is a disgusting five to trot out. And if you look before this season and before last year for not counting the Nuggets, I mean, the first team that I think of is probably the 2019 Raptors and then the Warriors preceding them. And those are loaded, loaded groups, hallowed groups to yeah. be a part of when you're talking about the depth that that Raptors team had with Lowry, with Kawhi, with Gasol, Siakam, Van Fleet, and mm-hmm. Anobi, the Warriors, Curry, Thompson, Durant, Draymond, loaded. Uh, I think you're looking at that kind of, of group here, and they've been producing, man. This is one of the best regular season teams uh, that I you know, can recall in recent memory. Yeah, they're unbelievable. And I do think it's important that we have a conversation like this, Logan, just because I felt like after the last time we talked about the Celtics, a lot of people came away with the impression that we were being very negative about the team, really just because we framed it as, are they the title favorite? And I said, no, I think that they are my number two title favorite because they are dealing with really great competition in Denver. I think if we do get that finals matchup, it will be one of the best in the last decade. I think that it will be two of the strongest teams to make the finals and face each other. Like, I think so highly of both of these teams. And I absolutely think that this is one of the best starting fives in recent memory of this century. In 282 minutes in which that entire starting five has played together, Logan, they have a plus 19.5 net rating this year. A 122 offensive rating, best in the league, 102 defensive rating, by far best in the league. Everything just works here. Now, I do agree with you. I think the Nuggets group is even a bit more perfectly complimentary and they do have the advantage of having the overwhelming best player in a theoretical series between these two 
But I do think there is a lot of complimentary stuff in Boston as well on top of the elite talent. You have the two elite defensive guards and Derek White and Drew Holiday, both of whom are big, are exceptionally versatile. Derek White, one of the best shot-blocking guards in the league, capable of really affecting people with those rear-view contests. Drew Holiday, maybe the best guard in the league in terms of guarding bigs. His matchup versatility is just obscene. And then those guys are both hitting 42% of their threes. They're very skilled offensively. They're plus playmakers, but they're more than happy to settle into being a fourth or fifth option. That's like the rare sort of perfect complementary backcourt that you could have for your two scoring wings who are strong, who are athletic, who are skilled, who can operate on or off ball. And then you have a five who's an elite shooter, protects the rim really well, and can cook mismatches. Like you can have questions about, okay, are Tatum and Brown perfect enough to be considered in the upper, upper echelons of like the top two guys on the great teams in recent memory, right? Can they be too inconsistent with their shot selection and their playmaking? Questions like that are fair to ask. They're obviously really good, but we're talking about special conversations. But the third through fifth options are perfect. I think they have five top 40-ish, definitely top 50 players when you're talking not about Raw production, not about maybe the ability to carry a team to mediocrity if you made them the guy, but to play winning basketball, those complementary two-way play finishing, spacing skill sets that we're talking about with all these guys, the playmaking from the guards. I don't think that has happened all century. That sort of like our fifth guy, whoever it may be, it changes game to game, is this sort of star or just sub all-star level. So to me, the other candidate slogan I mean, I would even maybe set the bar a little bit higher than where you had it. The 2019 Raptors are a good option, but I just think, like, if you look at Danny Green starting on that team, that version of Marcus Saul, like, the gap between Derek White or Drew Holiday and either of those guys, like, it's sizable, man. And that's not a diss on those guys. Marcus yeah, Saul yeah. played his role very, very mm-hmm. well. We're just talking about, like, again, borderline all star sort of players here. So. To me, I think the 2023 Nuggets are in those conversations. The 2017 Warriors, Zaza may have been way below these other guys, but it's probably the best big four that we've ever seen. I have the 2005 Suns, Nash, Joe Johnson, Q Rich, Sean Mary, and Amare. That's just like unbelievable star-level talent with damn good offensive complementary players as your fourth and fifth options. Not as good defensively, though. This is a unit that is just clearly top five on both sides of the ball. I think the 4 Pistons probably are the closest in terms of our third through fifth options are that good because that was a four all-star sort of team. When I say 04, I'm just picking that year because that was when they won the title, but really all the way through 06, 07. Chauncey Rip, Tayshawn Sheed, Big Ben, that's unbelievable. And then I think you have the 01 Lakers because they have that overpowering duo, maybe the best we've ever seen with Kobe and Shaq at that level. And then you have Rick Fox and D-Fish who are playing really well. Horace Grant. It's a different path to getting there. If we're talking about the three through five, they're not as strong, but I think that's offset by what you have from that duo. And then some others on my short list, you have a couple versions of the Spurs teams, just very balanced, very complimentary. The 0203 Kings, Logan, I think Bibby, Christy, Peja, C-Web, Vlade. That's more like that Pistons team, honestly, in that you don't have the one superstar talent, but boy, all of those guys were so damn good at their roles. You have the Celtics 2008 to 2010 with their big four. Perk, unfortunately, is a level far below who we're talking about. But my point is, all of these teams, I think the Celtics are certainly in the same tier as. And I think that there's probably only four or five starting fives who I would take over them. 
this century. I think that both they and Denver have put together unbelievable starting units, especially, and they deserve props from that. And the depth has been a little bit better. I mean, I if, like, I like if that. Nunez like Kate is going to play like this. Reset solid, you know, Hauser's been fine. Like, it's not a strength. You still have Horford, who's certainly not what he used to be, but as a sixth guy, pretty solid. It is pretty in the weeds here. I never understood why the Kings didn't play Kata, man. We kept yeah. him in uh they kept him in the G League with the Stockton Kings for two years, never got any any NBA burn, man. And yeah. I don't know, he's he's a good big body, man. Guys like that are valuable. Okay, let me ask you this, and then we'll talk about the Lakers who lose this game and are on a bit of a skid as of late. Mm-hmm. We talked last week, and you said that Boston still was not clearly above LA in your contender hierarchy or Milwaukee. I said I disagreed. I think they are clearly a top two team in basketball. After now the Celtics have won this game, what will it take for you for Boston to clearly pass LA in that hierarchy? Yeah, uh... And I would probably have, those are still my top four, Denver, Boston, Milwaukee, L.A. And I know L.A.'s been on a skid. Hear me out. My order now probably goes Denver 1, Boston 2, L.A. 3, Milwaukee 4. It's going to take Jason Tatum reliably closing out games and finishing stuff off. And you you texted me that you found a stat um, about Tatum in the clutch that kind of backed this up a little bit too uh, after we did our last show. And I don't want to be too critical of of Boston. Like you said, I really like Boston. They're probably my Eastern front runner right now in the preseason. My uh, NBA finals prediction was Lakers Celtics. What we got Mm -hmm. on Christmas day. It's going to take them finishing off games just because I've seen it too many damn times for me to just pencil in Boston as a team that's going to slam the door. Great teams shut the door. They vice-grip teams, and they put, a, put them in a chokehold, and they knock yeah. it out, man. That's what Denver does. Jokic yeah. and Murray go after teams, and they finish them off in the fourth quarter. And, again, I can't be critical of Boston because of what they've done offensively in recent memory. The last five games, they have an offensive rating of 131.5. That's insane. Ridiculous. Over the last yeah. 10, they have an offensive rating of 127.3. Consistently, throughout every second of the game, they're good. And then when it comes into the fourth quarter – that's when it gets that's when it gets tough and i need to see that tatum can do this that is still my biggest flaw and concern to this team man uh again i think it's reared it's i i don't think it's reared its head as much as it has in years previous but that's still my biggest chief concern about this team is having a top dog that can end it man that killer yeah to me that only becomes a difference maker when you are looking at the nuggets because i view them as mm-hmm. being on that level as a basketball team for 48 minutes. So let me ask you this then. If Do you even think, does anybody out east push Boston to six then in your eyes? Yeah. Uh, I think Milwaukee's really good. I mean, I don't think that there's an insane gap between mm-hmm. the two. But I do think Boston has more elite and very good basketball players. Mm-hmm. And that is an incredible, incredible weapon to have where you don't need Jalen Brown to be your second third or fourth best player in a game you might not need it in a series and that could still be giving you 23 a game on solid efficiency it's just the all-around impact other guys are doing more with this next level defensive stuff with this playmaking with this unbelievable shooting from beyond the arc like nobody else is looking at that sort of depth of damn good top 50 sort of talents that's to me the separator between them and the Lakers. They just have more awesome basketball players on both sides of the ball. 
maybe I do trust a LeBron-led offense a little bit more in the clutch. But you got to get there, man. You got to get to the clutch against the Celtics. And over a seven-game series, that's tough to do with the Lakers' talent level with some of the inconsistency we've seen from their supporting guys. And I'm still a big Lakers dude. I think they're way better than their record. I do think they're in these top five contender conversations. But I just think Boston has separated. For what it's worth, the stat that you were mentioning, Tatum, 50th in clutch points per game this year on 31% shooting, very bad. Now, I do think it's worth noting that that's a small sample size, but that will always be sort of the one thing that we flag with him and the Celtics as a whole. To me, it's just only going to matter against Denver, maybe Milwaukee, with how great the Celtics are right now. All I want for the holidays this year is some NBA action. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks. An instant dub just for you. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NERDS. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code NERDS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problems with gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles, 21-plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility and Deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. But the Lakers are 1-5 in their last six games. And overall, since they had that statement run in the in-season tournament, they just haven't been playing very well. How concerned are you about that skid, Logan? And what do you put that on? I'm not super concerned about the Lakers in general, Carson, because they have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. I am concerned that... Does Darvin Ham know how to use this team? I, you know, good question. I, I don't. There's just some guys that just make personnel decisions that just make me scratch my head. Uh, Darvin Ham is is one of them. Uh, they tried out a lineup of Cam Reddish, Jared Vanderbilt, Tarian Prince, LeBron James, and Anthony Davis. Uh, great stat, courtesy of Jovan Buha, uh, goes on with a uh, friend of the show, host of Hoops Tonight, Jason Timp. Uh, periodically, they talk a lot of Lakers ball. The new Lakers starting five in 18 minutes of play, Carson, would rank dead last in offensive rating, defensive rating, net rating, effective field goal percentage, and true shooting if you extrapolated the 18-minute sample size we got from them to the league as a whole. They had an offensive rating of 105, worse in the league, defensive rating of 125, worse in the league, negative 20 net rating worst in the league, an effective field goal percentage of 40%, and a true shooting percentage of 46.8%. Again, both marks worse in the league. Not where you want to be. That's, and, and it, none of the, none of the uh, body language or, or stuff in the presser I get from LeBron is encouraging. LeBron comes out after this game. I don't think we're where we're, uh, we want to be uh, to be able to yeah. compete against good teams. This, to me, signals that there is a trade coming. Obviously, we've been talking about that this yeah. entire year with the Lakers. And I've heard DeJounte Murray as a trade target. And nope, I've heard please, Zach nope. Levine as a trade target. And I don't like either of those. So, my concern with the Lakers is, with Darvin Ham, does he know how to use this lineup? Like, you need Austin Reeves, buddy. I don't know how to mm-hmm. explain this to you. You need Austin Reeves out there. It, or D'Lo. 
you need an offensive player. I, I get what you were trying to do with Vando and Reddish. I completely suffocate them, you know, turn defense into offense, get out in transition. It doesn't work. Uh, basketball is yeah. just not like that. You need to play like we need to upgrade to modern basketball. Spacing, guys who can drive the lane, just guys who are more skilled. And I know that Austin hasn't been you know, as great as he once was, but last 15, he is still 16-4-5 on 49-39-96 splits. He's a good offensive player. You need to play him. He just does so much more for your team than these guys, and he's so much more valuable in the half court. So I am worried about Darvin Ham figuring out this rotation, but there's still yeah. a lot of talent I like here, and I think that if they package D'Lo and can make a move for a good enough piece, I, I still can believe in this team, but... I don't like the energy. I don't like the lineups they're trotting out here. And and energy is the biggest thing to me, man. And I just don't get why we're toying with the lineup at this point in the season. I get that you hit a skid and you want to shake things up. This, to me, was not the move. I'm with you here 100%. I don't get what Darvin Ham is doing with this lineup. I think that we have been saying repeatedly that D'Lo and Reeves have somewhat redundant skill sets. They do a lot of the same things well in terms of secondary shot creation, a bit of playmaking, and they struggle in some of the same areas, that being mostly the defensive end of the floor. And Reeves is a better version because he's going to give you a bit more effort. He's not as much of a ball stopper. He's better off ball. But regardless, moving to a lineup in which one of them is in the starting five and one of them is off the bench, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. But now, sending both of them to the bench, when, in the minutes they've played together, Lakers have not been good. They have a negative 6.1 net rating when those two are on the floor at the same time. Makes no sense. Especially because when I look at what this team needs from their supporting cast alongside LeBron and AD, I think absolutely you need athletes who can defend high-motor guys on the wings and the perimeter. But then you also probably need one other guy who can create his own shot and reliably knock down shots and run the offense for little stretches when LeBron and AD are sort of in that coasting mode that we know they like to lean on. And now you've not just eliminated those guys. Like you have said, hey, why don't we play with the least offensive skill possible? Reddish, Vando, and Prince are averaging a combined 19 points per game this season. And Torian doesn't belong right in the same tier because he has been a legitimately good shooter this year. And he is a legitimately good shooter. But in terms of creation off the bounce, I mean, he's giving you nothing. And in the two games that those guys have all started together, they've combined for 22 points per game. It just doesn't make sense. You've put an offensively deficient group around your two superstars now, and they've had to go to Cam Reddish actually handling the ball. And that's when things go south. This has been a big Cam Reddish redemption in LA because he has been so willing to embrace the defensive end of the floor where he can impact the game with his athleticism and physical tools and whatnot. And he can knock down enough open jumpers. But when you start asking him to run your offense at all, like it's not good. It's not pretty. So they've just got less offensive pop here and they've got worse offensive process because now instead of asking even D'Lo to run a couple possessions, it's dudes who just have no business doing that. So that doesn't make sense to me. It does make me question what Darvin Ham is thinking what his level as an overall coach is. There's not a ton that he's done that has really impressed me. That is a red flag. And Reeves has been really good in December. He should be starting, period, point blank. The other thing is their defensive effort has just been poor. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is the Lakers experience, right? They didn't care at all. And then they were dialed in for the in-season tournament. And now they're 23rd in defense rating in this skid. They've had some embarrassing performances. That Spurs game, I thought, was just disgusting to watch. I mean, 
horrible effort in terms of rotations, closeouts, transition. They were just hemorrhaging wide open threes. I mean, San Antonio handled them, and that's a four-win team that has proceeded to get blown out in every game that they've played since. And in this Boston game, I mean, it wasn't the most egregious, but they didn't defend well. I thought Boston was able to get out and transition more than LA was. Jalen Brown was really pushing there. And I did think the Celtics really effectively pinpointed whoever the smallest guy on the floor was, even if it was Cam Reddish. Like, Jalen and Jason are big and athletic dudes, and they're strong. And so they were attacking him in post-ups, or if it was D'Lo or Reeves, and either scoring, basically, or drawing help, creating an open look. So, I mean, it's an effort thing. It's a lineup thing. Those are things to which, long-term, there are solutions. They don't cause me to panic, and it's sort of what we're used to with this Lakers team in the regular season. So, no, I'm not panicking. They haven't moved meaningfully in terms of my overall view of them. And for what it's worth, the one positive thing is this hyper-assertive AD that we've seen offensively is a very good thing. I mean, starting with that Pacers game, he's averaging 33-13 and 13 on 65% true shooting. Doesn't make me think that we're going to see that AD just automatically over a full playoff run, but I'd rather see him than not see him. 100%. That was the final aspect of this is that I was going to say is that it just sucks. Darvin Ham is legitimately, and this team has legitimately wasted great AD games that mm-hmm. it just... It just hurts, man. You drop a 40-piece and you get dropped off by 10. When, again, if the Lakers had a different lineup out there, I think this is a much more competitive basketball game. It's, you know, when you're building basketball teams or football teams, you know, we tend to, for a while, there were so many super teams built, Carson, that we felt, oh, we just have to get so much individual talent possible, right? And you see that with how the Phoenix Suns constructed their roster. Let's get Beal, let's get Book, let's KD, let's build the super team, and let's go to work. Right. And we've seen that. You see the Lakers trying this. It's like it's much – it's way more better building a lineup that is going to work together cohesively. Again, the Nuggets, it's easier said than done, but play guys that complement each other. Don't just play a bunch mm-hmm. of tall, athletic dudes. None of them can dribble. It's – again, man, it just really makes me wonder, like, what – Darvin, it's not 4 anymore, man. We're not yeah. – we're not in – 60 to, we're not playing 67 to 66 point games man you know where the the Pistons are just knocking guys out like that it's it's yeah. not 04 anymore we gotta we gotta get with the times and we gotta play smarter basketball it, it does make me question his acumen a little bit and this isn't the first time that he's made a really really head-scratching lineup decision man it is funny just because this makes me think about like I think last time we had Jason on you were talking about like imagine the defensive lineup the Lakers can deploy if they put Reddish and Vando and Tori and all out there with LeBron and AD and I was like man. <laughs> no I was literally like hey, they would never play that lineup Logan that lineup's unplayable and then two weeks later that is their starting five like it's just ridiculous it's just bad process okay let's talk about Another fun game that we saw over in the West, Warriors-Nuggets, Logan. Denver wins this one. They've now won five straight after a little bit of, not a full-on skid, but just underwhelming few weeks of regular season basketball. What's impressed you most about Denver reeling off five straight here? Just that everybody's back healthy and back together. It's everything, man. I, I don't really... I love the Nuggets. I can't sing their praises enough, and... I can't really pinpoint to you anything new about the Nuggets that's remarkable. Murray and Jokic are doing this their thing. Everything is working well together. They're monstrous in transition. They're playing great defense. Everything's clicking. It just feels like the Nuggets are back on track the way they were in the playoffs last year. 
the starting five is insane, man. I think they're like plus 18 together. Um, and plus minus, it's it's ridiculous during this stretch. And Jokic isn't even leading the team in points. Jamal is at 24 a night, uh, six boards, five assists. Aaron Gordon is playing phenomenally, doing his role uh, to perfection. It's really just the starting five that's going to work, and it's Jokic dominating again. We talk about the Nuggets a lot. Like, I don't really have anything anything new on Denver. It's the same Nuggets starting five going out there and dominating the way that we expected them to, and it's, damn, man, it's encouraging. We just talked about the Ravens and the Chiefs, and we talked about the Lakers and how inconsistent great teams can be. The Nuggets are just consistently great. It's like the sun came out, man. The Nuggets balled out again. It's really good to see great teams walk in every night and just handle business they are just consistently, night to night, the best team in basketball, and they've got consistently the best superstar night to night in the world. That's interesting. I haven't been blown away by the level the Nuggets have been at. I mean, they've been sort of skating by in some of these games against not-so-great teams, beat Toronto, Brooklyn, Charlotte, all by single digits, and Jokic hasn't been his best. I mean, he hasn't been the best player in the world in these last two weeks or whatever. I absolutely believe that is his title, but the level he's been playing at versus the level of guy that Joel Embiid has been playing at. But to me, the encouraging thing is you talk about seeing the whole starting five back out there. Specifically, it's Jamal Murray being healthy again and being himself. You mentioned in this win streak, he's 24 a night on 61% true shooting. And against the dubs, I mean, he really put the game on ice. He hits a tough turnaround and sort of a bailout possession. He hits a big-time pull-up three buckets that create separation in those last three minutes. Against Brooklyn, it was a similar situation. They're neck and neck in that game. He's got a couple tough buckets in the fourth. And up to that point, he had missed a bunch of games with injury. And even when he was healthy, he had been 18 points per game on 57% true shooting. He had been regular season Jamal Murray, who we know for some reason is never going to be an all-star in his entire career. And these last five games, he's looked more like postseason Jamal Murray. The Jamal that we count on being at that level when it comes to playoff time, but we hadn't seen all that consistently this year. And it's just huge for Denver winning in those closing situations, having another guy who was a high-level threat with the ball in his hands. And when Jokic isn't at his A game, when he's not just automatically carrying you, when he isn't dominating every single possession, Having a player who is like, yep, yeah, that's a top 20 guy. That's not just an 18-point-per-game score on average efficiency. That's big. But mostly it is just Denver taking care of business, doing what they do. The Warriors, though, Logan, even after losing this game, have flipped the switch. And they've had an easier stretch of their schedule as of late. But they're 5-1 and one over their last six. They were very competitive in this game. How convinced are you by their turnaround? Doing this all, by the way, without Draymond, who's still suspended, of course. Yeah, and I think we saw this coming. We we talked about with Jason about the Warriors skid and how we all were kind of just waiting on them to find their footing to get mm-hmm. back to where they were. Now, this hasn't been, uh, you know, title changing. I don't look at this and change my odds and say all oh, the Warriors are going to make a run. But right. again, without Draymond, it is encouraging. Clay has played so much better, and when it comes to Clay playing better, it's literally just one thing: is his shot falling or not? <laughs> like you say, dude, every time because. I hear so many different takes on Clay every game. And my dad, my dad's so funny. He'll watch Clay miss one jump shot and he goes, Oh, yeah, man, Clay. That's what he's been doing. <laughs> and I'm like, Dude, it's one shot, Jimmy. I was like, Two minutes ago, he hit back to back threes or something. It's, you can get so reactionary with Clay because of the difficulty of shot. Great shooters 
Clay can't create separation. He can't create off the balance. He hasn't, like you've said, Carson, post-injury, Clay just takes bad shots. Are they going in or not? Clay's capable of making them. He's been making them more recently. Andrew Wiggins had hit a massive skid, is finally playing back up to expectation, knocking down open looks, attacking closeouts. So those two guys are not playing at the absolute bottom barrel of where they were, but also, oh my gosh, I've been blown away by the bench. I, I have... I thought in the offseason, Carson, we talked a lot about what the Warriors did this offseason. We thought they crushed it. We love the acquisitions they made. B-Pod, yeah. TJD, can Kaminga and Moody play into their own and you know improve? I've been blown away by the play of all of those guys. TJD um, can really hold his own, I think, against certain matchups. I was wondering, is he too small? Will he be able to handle guys? And again, I think that's... In bigger matchups, I wonder if he'll be able to be played like yeah. uh, hypothetically against a, a big Zubats, uh, Jokic. You know, in those matchups, I don't know, but he can hold his own against other guys, and he's been pivotal off the bench. Kaminga rebounding, playing tough defense, uh, playing physical, getting downhill, and looking for more shots down in the paint. B Pod playing complementary basketball. I think the Warriors absolutely crushed this offseason, yeah. and I, I really I think their bench has improved tenfold dude those guys are home run picks to me and just work uh yeah. Podzimski, uh, 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 especially man how he rebounds he's yeah. tall guard great at moving the ball and great at playing as a two guard in any line i just think he's a great complimentary piece it's like uh totally i hate to compare him to another white guard but it's like reeves-esque almost and where he just where he finds himself positionally he doesn't need the ball in his hands but when he has it he makes good decisions Everything is coming together more. And I just wonder, Carson, you tell me if you think I'm wrong or not. Does does Dre hurt the chemistry of this team at all? I just wonder. I don't know, man. Is he is he a headache? I, I don't know. I mean, like, they've been playing so much better without him. It just makes me wonder if you add a, a volatile variable back to the equation. I know Dre is Mr. Warrior, and yeah. he is going to be important to a title run. But I don't know. The team really feels like they're clicking and getting back into sync now. My prediction is he comes back and he's figured shit out and he's not getting I thrown hope. out of games willy-nilly anymore. I just can't see a suspension. Consequences of this scale, missing multiple weeks of a regular season, him just ignoring that. He's too smart. He's too experienced. And I still think he's very good for this basketball team, especially if they do make a move, bring another front court guy. We've seen now... They don't have to be married to Looney at the five. He's taking a step back with more athletic five in TJD. And if they can make a move for a Lori Markinen and they're bigger in the front court, then you can try some of those Dre at the five lineups. Like he just gives them so many options. He's just too good at basketball mm-hmm. for me to view him as any sort of negative. But I mean, this has been a super encouraging stretch and this has been exactly what I've been optimistic about with the Warriors all year. The reason that I I liked them a lot more than last year's team early in the year, the depth is so much better. And it's not even the bench anymore, Logan. I mean, Pods and Kaminga are starting, and they are balling. Pods, to me, is the most impressive. And the Reeves comparison is interesting. I think that Pods is a guy who does more of the little things. I think he has less probably high-end offensive skill as a creator. I don't think he's as good as Austin Reeves. But he's just everywhere. You see it in this game, right? He's jumping passing lanes. He's forcing turnovers. He's just so much more dialed in on the offensive glass. If you fall asleep, he will attack the boards so aggressively. 
And then he's going to knock down his shots. He's going to make smart reads within the flow of the offense in transition. Such a creative passer. I mean, just an awesome, awesome basketball player. Exactly the kind of guy you hope to land with the 20th pick if you're a team that wants to go out and win now. And TJD has been playing more than Looney in this streak that they're on. And he's giving you 11-9 on 73% from the field. And it's just a dimension that the Warriors have never really had or haven't had since JaVale McGee. And it's what they hoped Wiseman could be. Wiseman sucked. Having a real lob threat, a real athlete at the five, a dude who runs the floor hard. And he's not as big as JaVale was, right? He's not a seven-footer. He's 6'9". He's not as big as Wiseman. But it's still a dimension that Kevon Looney just doesn't bring to the table. Now, he's still totally outmatched guarding a five like Nikola Jokic, but... Really, who isn't? Like, he can protect the rim at a solid level. He moves reasonably well in pick and roll. I think he was another home run, as we said at the time. And then Kaminga, maybe he's still a guy who is a trade piece because maybe he doesn't fit perfectly in the system and you won't get the best version of him in Golden State on this timeline. But, I mean, at the very least, he's increasing his trade value and he's playing legitimately very well. 14 a night on 67% true shooting in this run. And... He's just making the most of his athletic advantages, but he's a bit more under control than he's previously been. I think he's a little bit better with some of the touch shot making. His drives are a little bit more diverse, but most importantly, I mean, he's going at people. He is posting dudes up. He's been an 84th percentile post-up scorer. He's cutting really well. He's running hard in transition. It's just everything that you think, all right, what does the best version of Kaminga look like? He has been that. And then when Wiggs and Clay are coming around, this is the team that I'm like, yeah, that's a legit playoff squad. They're not a title contender because they are still lacking in star creation alongside Steph, star offensive talents, and that size and athleticism in the front court against the really great teams. But, I mean, in a game where Steph sucked and Clay sucked and they got an unfavorable whistle, they were right in it against the Denver Nuggets, who we both view as the title favorite. And they are still outscoring opposing teams by eight points per 100 possessions Without Steph Curry, man. I mean, that margin, we talked about how rare it's been that they've won the minutes without him at all. I think it's only twice in his career by very small margins. They're like an elite team when he's off the floor. They're getting outscored when he's on the floor. And that's not on him. That's on how bad Clay and Wiggins and some of the other stars have been. Looney struggles and all that. But I'm just so encouraged by that still. I'm so encouraged. The Warriors, to me, are a top five team out West. And when we look at some of the teams that have big issues... I'm encouraged by the solutions that they have because the depth is so good because I do believe those key players are starting to play better and will get better. They will get Draymond back. They do have the pieces to make a trade that could elevate them into another conversation. I'm just really encouraged by what we're seeing from this Warriors team. This was the vision, and now that they've gotten to a lighter stretch of their schedule and just everybody's found more of a rhythm, they're playing the right guys, it's been really fun. As a uh, as a Warriors fan, I know you have mentioned Lowry Markin and yeah, uh, we talked to Zach Levine. Are there any other big time guys uh, or other marginal moves that you think that you'd like to see the Dubs make at the deadline? Big time guys. I think if you targeted one of the Raptors, if it's OG Ananobi or Pascal Siakam, I really want them to get a big forward who does unlock those small ball lineups because they just can't play those right now with Draymond at the five. But if you can add size and athleticism in the front court with real offensive skill, that'd be great. Now, Markkanen to me is the best because he is by far the best fit. Him mm-hmm. in this motion system, I mean, 
it's very similar to what the Jazz already do. Tons of off-ball screens, tons of moving to open space. That's where Markkanen is at his best. If he gets switches generated by an off-ball screen, he can attack those mismatches. And then defensively, he's not great, but he's also not a guy you're going to consistently expose. And he is a seven-footer, right? So, I mean, he's adding size. He's adding rebounding value. So, I think they just need to do something. Mm -hmm. And I become increasingly convinced that Chris Paul does not really matter for this basketball team. I really liked the fit at first. And it's not that I hate the fit. It's just if you're going to pay somebody $30 million, you can get more out of it than a guy who helps steady your second unit when your second unit's already balling. Like, I think these dudes are good with or without Chris Paul. Pods, Logan, I mean, Pods is playing better basketball than Chris Paul. Like, I just don't think they need him. And that's a contract that, you know, if they can attach in this stuff, they should, along with a couple of young players and picks so that there's a real asset. It depends on what contract they have to match because Markkinen's contract, they don't need CP. Markkinen's making $18 million. It's just going to depend on who exactly they target. But I think CP is definitely movable from their perspective. Last thing that I think was a real storyline from this game that I'll touch on quickly is the officiating. How Jokic was officiated, he got 18 free throws in this game, and it wasn't from a bunch of hard drives to the bucket where he's getting mauled. A lot of it was away from the ball. A lot of it was non-shooting situations. And Steve Kerr came out and basically said this was disgusting. The officials ruined the game. A lot of people shared that same sentiment. I thought that it was too favorable a whistle for Jokic. I thought that... Some of those situations, right, if he gets bumped curling around a screen, you don't necessarily need to call that foul. There was also a situation where I thought might not have been a shooting foul. They argued that he was in the shooting motion, but he was really facing away from the basket. Like, there were probably four to six free throws granted there where I would have said, okay, yeah, that's probably a foul by the books, but it's pretty ticky-tack. It's certainly not a call that Jokic usually gets. And so I didn't really like that. I'm just generally opposed to officials deciding games, as we have discussed before. I did think that it also spoke to a real issue that the Warriors have, though, which is size in that front court. Because if your defenders are at physical advantages all game, and it's rookie TJD or Kavon Looney, they probably are going to foul a lot. And they did foul him a lot. Like, whether it should have been 18 free throws or 14 free throws, Jokic was going to eat at the line in this game no matter what. And they just had no prayer in single coverage. Like, Jokic, his shot was totally off in this game. Like, his touch shot making, it wasn't what we're used to at all. But you see in that fourth quarter, I mean, he gets loony a couple times and it's just barbecue chicken both times that they do defend him without fouling. And the Warriors have struggled to defend without fouling all year. That's another problem that they've had. So... I didn't like it. I did think that Jokic was selling contact. There was contact there. But again, in non-shooting situations, non-drives, you just don't need to call that every time to me. But what's funny is I've seen people say Jokic is the biggest foul baiter in the game. It's just like settled down. (laughs) Like The two superstars who have always gotten the least favorable whistle are Steph and Jokic. Because Jokic plays a crazy physical style of basketball. But he has these overwhelming advantages because he's so big and so strong. You're allowed to hack him normally. You're allowed to maul him. And they won't give him the benefit of the doubt. Just scored 30 points for him. I mean, over the last three playoffs. And he's always between six and seven free throws a game. Like, settle down. It's one game from his perspective. But in terms of the league, in terms of how officiating goes broadly, yeah, I don't like dudes walking into 25 points in a game like that. Well, in the way Kerr phrased it too, 
like you said, I don't know if this is the game to point fingers at uh, because, again, I think Kerr needs to look in the mirror and take a look at his bench uh, for situations like this against a guy like Jokic. But he said it exactly right. He talked about, you know, guys BSing their way to the foul line, and it encourages it. It encourages players to go out and make plays. And it's that's just not basketball, man. It's yeah. You need – refs need to put their foot down and say, like, we're not going to reward you guys for doing this. And maybe – I don't know. I don't know if the answer is, you know, uh, what's the word? Uh, fining guys, you know, for for foul baiting or, or what the – there's to just stop giving them the whistle. I, I don't know. I don't even think there was a single situation where Jokic foul baited in this game, though. Mm-hmm. I think – and it's a subtle distinction. Flailing, selling contact, flopping, that's different from foul baiting. I would argue what a guy like Joel Embiid or Austin Reeves do, right – where they are deliberately trying to catch you in the cookie jar, they are not putting up a legitimate shot, right? They are basically just trying to get you to reach that little bit, and then they're just going to come up or the rip through, stuff like that, where it's like, all I'm trying to do here is get to the line. That, to me, is foul baiting. What Jokic was doing is like, hey, you're fouling me, and I'm going to dramatize the contact to make sure that the official sees. Either way, I don't like it, but, you know, I think it's a little bit of a different thing. I think there is a difference to make uh, the flailing part of it. It's exactly like you said. Are you? Is it a natural motion into a shot? Are you attempting a shot or are you trying to? I think the solution is simple. You stop giving the guys the calls and they'll stop doing it. Yeah, very true. And I think that they could have done that in this game. Jokic is definitely not the face of manipulating officials in the league. But I didn't like this game. And I do think that he relied on that because he knew that he didn't have his shot and he was sort of just like waltzing through this game. Like, I mean, he made good decisions as a playmaker and all that, but this was far from Jokic's a game and he was able to still end up with a Jokic looking stat line in terms of raw production in a way that he normally is not. Okay. When you're an American express platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count or shoot that, shoot that. And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Let's talk about another matchup out west, Logan, which was Suns Mavericks. Phoenix lost this one. They've now lost five of their last six, nine of their last 12 games. Are the Suns cooked, Logan? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, man. Uh, it's it's tough. You know, Beal goes down, and that to me felt like the straw that broke the camel's back uh, in, in a way. I, I felt like it really kind of took the air out of Phoenix. You know, Phoenix for, for a while now, when are we finally going to get the trio together? When are we going to get all three of these guys together? We can actually see them fully healthy with the bench unit. And then Beal suffers another ankle injury, and we don't know when he's going to get back. I mean, it was really, really deflating. So there's a couple issues. One, the health concerns with all these guys. Two, I don't think the bench is extremely complimentary. Yeah, you've got guys who can offensively do things, but there's not really a great point of attack defender. Or defense is the key word to me. And, like, there's no real great defenders here on the interior or on the outside around these three guys. So we got injuries. We got the defensive issues. And then three, it really is to me, at the end of the games, our chief fundamental concern with the the guys coming together here, it's a lot of stagnation. It's not a lot of flowing, free-flowing, easy offense. The Warriors play beautiful basketball. The Nuggets play beautiful basketball manufacturing these shots. The Boston Celtics, at their absolute apex when everything is going right, play this beautiful flowing basketball. And the Suns, in crunch time, when the going gets tough, you just see it on display a lot of settling for mid-range jump shots. Just a lot of settling for tough jumpers late in games when you need dynamic, reliable, manufactured offense. It's like, it's something that Jason hampers on in playoff basketball that I love. If there's an action working in a game, and if you're playing the game too, you realize this, you're going to keep going to that action. And if the defense keeps giving you the same look, well, you're going to keep going back to that action, it's going to work. The way to switch on that on defense or offense is to be dynamic. Okay, well, if I hedged on this screen this time, maybe I go under it. Maybe I go for the ball and we blitz him and we double team him off of this screen. You see what I'm saying? It's just different looks. It makes it harder to defend fundamentally. Football. Oh, we've been throwing the ball. We're going to hand it off here. And then it sets up the play action, right? It's deception. Deception sets up everything. And being dynamic in late game scenarios helps you create easy offense because you're not just giving them the same look. Well, if KD's going to get a screen and dribble into a two-dribble pull-up from the elbow, that's not super dynamic. It can just lull you into, into bad offense, and I feel like it's the stars don't really gel together. Again, we haven't seen a ton of games where they can work together to find how they mesh together. The defense and the complementary pieces aren't great, and then you just worry about health. Yes, if I had to predict right now with the state of all the other teams out west with the Clippers hitting their groove, with the Warriors seeming to hit their groove, with the Nuggets doing Nuggets things, with the Lakers' baseline floor of LeBron and AD, the Suns at this point don't seem like they have a chance of making a playoff run. And yeah, and and, and reportedly, day by day, Kevin Durant is getting more and more frustrated. And that's that's the scenario. We talked a lot about Carson, Luka, and Kyrie maybe not figuring it out, and maybe Luka leaving town The big issue is the repercussions of a Kevin Durant-Bradley Beal trade where KD wants out, uh uh-oh. Beal wants out, uh uh-oh. 
D-Book wants out, and then you have no draft picks for the next decade, that is the potential nightmare scenario that we could see, that, that we potentially see forming for Phoenix. I would not pick them to do anything. I, I don't really have any faith or any uh, eggs in the Suns' basket, so to speak, right now. Yeah, this has been the worst-case scenario, basically, for all of the issues that we would have predicted for this team. One of which would have been health, right? Are we going to see the big three out there in a playoff run when it matters? Not looking good. Not looking good when we've seen, like, fractions of two games with all of them out there. Beal has barely been available at all. Depth. We talked about how we both liked what they did with limited resources, I have liked it less as this year has progressed. I think it is a big issue. When you talk about them lacking guys who can defend, I mean, the dudes who do have those skill sets, Okogi cannot hit a shot. Jordan Goodwin cannot hit a shot. And so then you have guys like Grayson Allen and Eric Gordon who are solid offensive players, really good shooters, upgrades from who they had on the wings offensively last year, but they're not two-way difference makers. Some of the moves on the margins, like Kata Bates-Diop, I thought, boy, that was a good value add. I've been disappointed by him. Nurk, I know you liked early in the year, but I just think limited athlete on offense, inefficient score because he doesn't bring that easy finishing on the interior, and then defensively, he's just going to get exposed. So regardless of what they did in terms of value adds, the fact that they did deplete all their resources to go in on this big three means the supporting cast gap between them and the actual contenders is huge bro it is massive I mean when you're talking about what the Nuggets have forget about it when you're talking about I mean even what the Clippers have Logan I like significantly more with the Zubots and the Terrence Manns of the world like you just go up and down the Suns might not be a top eight team in the West right now bro like the Kings are just consistently playing good basketball the Thunder are a really really good team Luka singularly is doing more to carry his team and I think actually does have better complementary supporting pieces. And then really it is the just entire team defense here. Like nobody could do anything with Luka in single coverage and then they started trapping in the home stretch and he just picked them apart. Their defensive personnel just isn't good enough. Physically, they don't have the athletic attributes and then the IQ isn't there either. Shout out to Metsu Metsu who like almost had a 20-20 in this game and busted his ass on the glass and like, I mean, you know, played well overall, but defensively, there's some situations where he's painfully out of position. He's in way too deep a drop. He takes a dumb gamble on a double, like against Luka Doncic, man. You're just going to get killed for that every single time. And that's what you mentioned with the stagnant offense. It's all on booking KD. They turn the ball over. They don't take the easiest shots. And for this to be the game that KD plays after those reports came out about, oh, KD frustrated. Things aren't working out. And he goes and lays 16 points and six turnovers and is really absent for this entire game. It's not great. And the thing with the Suns is I see real problems here that don't have real solutions. The Lakers we talked about have solutions, right? Darvin Ham, stop doing really dumb stuff, okay? LeBron can slap the shit out of him. He'll figure it out. Hey, guys, just play harder, right? And they have the assets to make a move that can address some of their roster issues. The Warriors, right? Hey, Clay and Wiggins, play like the basketball players we know you are. Draymond, come back. Maybe they can make a move. There are solutions there. The Suns, you're 20th in defensive rating. Okay, you're not going to win a title being that bad defensively. Bradley Beal comes back, you get even worse. I see no path to change that because their good defenders are largely unplayable offensively. You add Beal, you improve offensively, right? Guys can't load up on Book and Katie in the same way. 
but not by enough to offset that serious defensive limitation. And there's still not complementary enough skill sets offensively. And why would we even expect that big three to be healthy? And if your stars aren't bought all the way in, if KD is pissed, if KD is mentally checked out, then as the kids say, Logan, it's Jover. And I think that that is where the Suns are headed. Like, they weren't my favorite team coming into this year, but I had them third in the West. Now, no way, dude. This is not a team I would pick to win a playoff series. Out of all of the teams that may have big, shiny stars on paper but have mediocre records in the West, and there's a whole pack of them, I am most concerned by the Suns right now because they have the least clear path to progress, even though they've been missing Bradley Beal, this member of their big three, because I'm telling you, he doesn't fix their key problems. I completely agree. And Carson, I think it's a fundamental issue that we're seeing. There's a real distinct pattern to me with really rich owners coming into owning teams and then making really, really costly organizational franchise changing mistakes. Uh, Ishbia, and I get it. You made all kinds of money. You want to come in immediately. I'm not going to front on a guy for, I'm not going to hate on a guy for swinging for the fence or making moves, but I think there's a lot of examples. Ishbia, Going in on KD, going in on Beal. I got this money. I bought this team. I want this team to be good right now. Denver Broncos, Walmart people, buy in. Let's make this trade. Let's go all in. Let's get Russell Wilson. Let's get this Super Bowl. Clippers, Steve Ballmer, always going in for superstars. Kawhi, PG, Harden. Again, results may vary, but what we've seen is that these guys are really impatient and want it immediately, and sometimes it can be more costly to do these things, there's more uh, team. The Panthers, David Tepper, comes from Wall Street. Guess what? He flexed his muscle. He said, no, I don't want C.J. Stroud. Oh, all you football guys want C.J. Stroud? I want Bryce Young. I know better. I made all this money. I just think it's an important thing that maybe you should consult the basketball heads, the basketball people, before making these kind of moves. There's nobody that knows the sport better than the people that are going to be in your organization. And I'm not putting this all on HBA's shoulders, but... There should be a a chain of command and a, a more thought process to the cohesion and the complementary pieces and the ultimate repercussions that could come if this doesn't work out. And again, I think this could be a if KD's checked out, their goose is cooked, Carson. It's Jover. Yeah. <laughs> it's Jover. It's a good point broadly that you make about some of these owners just having a short-sighted, hyper-aggressive, super-confident because they've probably done really well elsewhere and they think that they know everything because of that. I do think that that's a real thing. When it comes specifically to the Sun situation, though, it's like Ishbia walked into sort of a sinking ship, right? The Suns had gone from a team that was in the finals and then won 64 games, and then it's, oh boy, the regression has hit hard. We've lost some of our depth. CP has taken a step back. DeAndre Ayton has remarkably regressed. That was a team that was like scraping to be above 500 last year, Logan. And so when they brought in Katie, I thought, boy, this really does heighten their ceiling. And then they got Bradley Beal giving up like nothing really painful. So he walked into a bad situation. And we can look now and say, oh, going all in on Katie, going all in on Beal, like that was the problem. But it really wasn't. The problem is that he started with a broken roster. You don't think so? I mean, if he had... What would they be if they hadn't traded for KD at all? No, 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 no. That is, not the issue. that is not the issue that that is not the move that I take issue with. The issue I take the move I take issue with is the move to get Bradley Beal when if you could have found and I know you have to make the money work too with the Chris Paul contract. That's what makes it so difficult. Yeah. 
if you could have somehow freed up some of that money to have cap space to go and sign, and again, I know the free agent class, it's a bad situation. I'm not saying that it was a bad situation from the jump, but I think the misstep was getting Beal instead of trying to retool the depth pieces and getting more complementary assets around those guys. I don't think they were in a good position to do that. Nobody who is a serious basketball team is going to trade like valuable role players of theirs for Chris Paul. I mean, Chris Paul was viewed as a negative asset. He was a big contract heading downhill and a team like the war or the team like the wizards, right? I mean, well, they managed to turn him into Jordan pool. Very impressive, but I was impressed that they were able to get Beal for what they did. And I never thought it was perfect. I never thought it made them a title contender. Like I never thought, Oh my God, this team is going to beat the nuggets, but I thought it gave them more of a, a shot than going out there with CP and that roster would have. Like, I agree. Like, in a perfect world, I am 100% with you. Really good two-way wing who isn't a Bradley Beal-level name, right? If they could have gotten KCP instead of Bradley Beal, thousand times out of a thousand, you do that. I just don't think a move like that was on the table. So, uh, I think that this has been a rough situation, and they have tried to make the most of it. But I think, honestly, I was overly optimistic even about what they could accomplish. And I absolutely believe there will be a run this year where, oh boy, the big three is healthy. And, I mean, we already saw it, right? When they were playing some crappy teams earlier in the year, they were reeling off wins. Like, it's still going to suck to have to try to stop KD and Book. But, I mean, when the guys around them are this limited, when the defensive ceiling is this low, we know that it can be done. We just saw it happen last year. I think we're going to see it happen again this year. Last thing we're going to touch on here, Logan, and this is a very long show, but there was a lot of sports action on Christmas. Merry Christmas, guys. Hope you like the extra long podcast. Here's our gift. Knicks Bucks. Jalen Brunson went crazy, dropped 38 points, delivered a Christmas victory to the city of New York. Shout out to him. I mean, we are longtime Brunson enthusiasts here at Nerd Sesh, but that was sort of the culmination of a broader discourse that we haven't weighed in on that I think is interesting. What's been your take on this entire thing going on with Becky Hammond saying that the Knicks don't have a sort of like 1A best guy on a title team guy and then everybody freaking out about that, her like having to issue a statement. What do you make of all of that? I mean, Jalen Brunson in a real realistic world probably isn't the best player on a championship winning team. I think Jalen Brunson could be a number two on a championship winning team. Uh, It's within expectations. I think to... Like, I don't take exact issue with Becky saying that because I don't disagree with her comments, and I have immense respect for Becky Hammond. For those that don't know, uh, now she's a Las, you know, head coach of the Las Vegas Aces for a long time, was an assistant with the San Antonio Spurs, and was one of the you know, sole female coaches in basketball. Mm-hmm. So I, I have immense respect for her and her basketball career as well. I believe she played. Uh, yeah, she did. I don't think she's wrong. I think to be critical of Brunson about the Knicks situation is just a little weird to me, though. I mean, Jalen Brunson is far from the problem in New York, and I don't know. I could never be critical of Jalen Brunson because he's just flat out one of my favorite players to watch. She wasn't, though. She wasn't critical of him, Logan, and this is a key point. She really wasn't. She just said they don't have that 1A sort of guy. And they don't. I mean, like, I think to have an uproar about... He just isn't. You know, if you had... Swap KD for Julius Randle. Maybe the Knicks have something. You know what I mean? But uh, shout out Brunson for coming back. And I I mean, I think it's just, would you even consider her comments negative? Do you think that's a negative comment about Brunson? 
no Logan, and that's the entire point here. To oh, me, oh, wait, wait, it's because yeah. she's a she's a woman with an opinion. I think that's it. I, think that's <laughs> I mean. It. Yeah, dude, I think that's a pretty big part of this. I think if a guy said this, people wouldn't bat an eye. Like, I'm dead serious. Sexism in sports discourse is so prevalent. This is a completely uncontroversial comment. To say that Jalen Brunson isn't the best guy on a title team? Are you kidding me? Do you understand who the best guys on title teams have been throughout the course of NBA history? Literally, just walk back. Nikola Jokic, back-to-back MVP. Giannis Antetokounmpo. Well, Steph Curry between the two of them. LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant. Like, go back through the entire scope of NBA history. The amount of times that the best player on the title team isn't a top five player in the league today is such a rarity. I mean, you have the Chauncey Billups. Like, that happens every few decades, right? Mm -hmm. It's so, so rare. Probably won't ever happen again. It Maybe it could. But it requires putting like four top 25 players on the same team like the Pistons had. And I love Jalen. I'm high on Jalen. I think he's a top 20 guy. And we talked after last year's playoff run. I prefer him over a guy like Donovan Mitchell in a playoff setting. I think there's more shot variety there. I think it's very valuable how he can slow a game down and always get to his spots. I prefer him to a John Morant for the same reason. Probably prefer him to a Trey Young because he's a better pure shot maker. That's close, but in a playoff setting, I think that's so, so valuable. But this, to me, is just the epitome of modern NBA discourse, man. It is the deliberate misunderstanding of other people's points. It's not just saying, oh, yeah, she's right. Jalen Brunson isn't a top five player. He's not even a top 10 player. Like, yeah, he's not going to be the best guy on a title team. It's taking that and saying, wait, women say Jalen Brunson bad? Jalen Brunson, not bad. Jalen Brunson, good. Jalen Brunson, the man. Love Jalen Brunson. Jalen Brunson, Nick. Love Knicks. You suck. Hate. Hate. Jalen Brunson, 38, said he couldn't. Little man said little man couldn't. Good. Little man can good. Little man good real hard. Little man do good. Little man, good job. And that's just my takeaway from this. It's stupid. It's asinine. And there is a conversation going on about the comments she made that really has nothing to do with the comments that she made. (laughs) And that just sucks. And that's, I feel like 80% of NBA discourse is people deliberately misunderstanding what other people are saying so they can be outraged about it and then just fabricating points of their own, deliberately misconveying the truth to serve whatever agenda they have. And I'm off that. I think that sucks. Speak truth to power. Sexism's freaking whack, man. Well, that's going to do it for us here, folks. The special Christmas edition of Nerd Sesh leaves you with the message, sexism is bad, and Jalen Brunson is good. Jalen Brunson is good. We're big Jalen Brunson fans. Logan, four years ago, we were singing his praises. You made a YouTube video about him. It was one of the first we ever did almost three years ago now. So uh, let's, just be, let's just be serious. Let's just be serious. All right, that's going to do it for us, guys. If you want more Nerd Sesh content, you can always listen to the full show across all audio platforms, and you can watch on YouTube. Uh, that is the Nerd Sesh YouTube page now. You can also follow us across social media, TikTok and Instagram at Nerd Sesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. You can join our Discord at the link tree across our social media bios if you want to just talk NBA, NFL with us, be part of our community. And you can check us out on Cameo if you want to request any custom messages from the nerds and find our merch at thevolume.com also in our link tree. So with that, as always, appreciate you guys. I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash.
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.